Well, it has not been said yet, but I hope you and your family had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving has looked a little bit different for many of us this year. In fact, 2020 has looked very different for all of us this year. I would argue that um, all of us have been impacted in some way, whether um, greatly or uh, minutely, by 2020 and all of the events that have happened. Um, it has been quite a wild year. We started the year with half of Australia on fire. Um, Kobe Bryant then passed away in a helicopter crash. There was an explosion in Beirut. The Dow took the single greatest one-day fall in history. A global pandemic swept through the entire world and continues to wreak havoc. Uh, political turmoil has divided our nation. And we're just in the beginning, almost, of December. So I don't know about you, but uh, my family quarantined for quite some time. And so for us, it went uh, January, February, March, quarantine November, and we're here now. And so it, it's been a tough year. It's been a really difficult year, if I could be honest. And I remember back in March 13th, my daughter, who is five years old, her name's Caroline. She was in the academy right in this room over here. And we received an email that said the academy would be closing down for two weeks. And so my wife and I took vacation time and we said, you know what? We're just going to lean into this, make it fun. We're going to have a family staycation. This will be over in two weeks. Uh, so we're at home and by day three, I'm already going stir crazy. I don't know if anyone is like that, but I, I have to do things. Um, within that two week span, we got another email that said we are going to cancel school for the rest of the year. And my heart kind of sank a little bit as I realized we need to get settled in here. We might be in this for the long haul. Now, after a few weeks of quarantine, um, I, I like to find projects. And so I had projects going on. I had uh, I do some woodworking and I had a little bit of woodworking going on in the garage. And my wife wanted a project and she decided that she wanted to do a deep clean of our child's toy room. Um, if you have children, you know, the room that I'm talking about, that somewhere in your home is a pile of unorganized stuff. You don't know how it got there. You wish the grandparents would stop sending stuff. You have zero impulse control. So when you go to Target, you buy a new toy for the kid. And all of a sudden, over five years, you're laughing because, you know, over five years, that just accumulates. Well, our playroom, right, when you walk in our house to the left, there's this room. And my wife decided she's going to take care of that. So I said, all right, honey, I, I wanted to encourage her. Um, and so she, she begins, uh, day one, she pulls out everything. And I mean everything. I'm talking not just the toys. There's furniture in the entryway into our door. There is um, all of the kitchenettes, the dollhouses, the play areas. All of that is now in the hallway that we walk into our door from. And, and I don't know if you're picking up what I'm putting down, but my stress level was starting to go up kind of high. But as um, a man who thinks he's wise, I decided not to say anything. Because husbands, uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Let me give you some free advice. When your wife has a project, don't say anything. Just let it ride. 
So over the course of the day, um, she kept pulling things out and she was pulling things out, just more and more and more stuff. And I kept thinking, I'm not sure how this is going to end. I'm not sure how this is going to play out. In fact, it doesn't look like it's even following my timeline at this point, because for me, cleaning is a two hour ordeal. It's you clean it up, you dust it, it's done. All right. We, we out of sight, out of mind. The next day rolls around. The stuff is still there in the hallway. And um, I'm getting a little more quiet because my stress levels are getting higher and higher. The second day rolls around. Everything's still in the hallway. And I'm starting to think, like, did, did she move on? Did she forget? Is this just what it is now? Third day, everything's still in the hallway. And, and finally I said, hey, well, you know, give me a little status report. What's the update? And um, fourth day rolls around. And at this point, I'm just kind of minding my business. Everything is still there. The fifth day rolls around, and I'm, I'm not kidding. I had a hard time going to sleep that night because I was just anxious about this. I wanted to come in there and just fix it myself. I wanted to do it because I know that I have these kind of preconceived notions of what it should look like, how it should go, how it should play out, where things need to be. And I just wanted to take charge. And I came downstairs the morning of the fifth day, and I kid you not, everything was perfect. She had apparently stayed up that night and cleaned and put everything in place. In fact, it was better than what I had expected and what I would have done. It just so happened that my wife was not necessarily working on the timeline I like. My wife wasn't working the way I would have preferred her to work, honestly. You know, it's interesting because 2020 has revealed a lot of things in my heart and possibly your heart. And I think that one of the things that it has revealed is that Jesus doesn't necessarily work on my timeline. And he doesn't necessarily work the way that I think he should work. And maybe you have that same idea where you started 2020 with high expectations. You thought this is going to be the year. This is we're all in on this. It's going to be great. And then all of a sudden there is a shutdown of business and maybe you lose your job. Maybe you're put on furlough or maybe 2020 started and all of the wedding plans for your child that you have dreamed of for years and years and years are either put on pause or they are scaled back dramatically or you still haven't been able to visit that loved one who is in the nursing home. Maybe you know someone who has passed away from COVID-19 and you weren't able to be at the funeral service. Or maybe uh, in the midst of political turmoil, a loved one and you have had a strained relationship and a wedge has been driven between maybe you and your child, you and your spouse, you and a parent. Maybe you're suffering mentally, emotionally, spiritually from quarantine, especially students who have not been in school and the, the rates of mental health that are increasing across our nation right now. 2020 hasn't played out the way many of us envisioned for it to play out. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 11 today. John chapter 11, we are not going to read verses 1 through 44. Don't worry. Uh, We're going to summarize that. But I would encourage you to go read this when you get home. There is so much in this passage, so many beautiful lessons in this passage that we can't handle them all today. 
Now, to give you a little context of what's going on in Jesus's ministry, Jesus is in um, John 10, verse 31. We learn that he is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. We would now call that Hanukkah. Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. They're celebrating Hanukkah. They are the Feast of Dedication. They are there. Um, many Jews have traveled to Jerusalem during this time. The city is swelling up with people. Um, it is elbow to elbow there. And Jesus is teaching, he's going about sharing parables and talking, and like they do, the Pharisees and the Sadducees try and catch Jesus. They try and um, kind of catch him in these verbal tricks and traps. And in this instance, they accuse him of blasphemy, of saying that he, because he said he is one with the Father. And so they want to kill him, so Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He heads two miles to the east across the Jordan, where John the Baptist was baptizing, This is near the city of Bethany, and if you're familiar with that area, this is near the East Bank. And this is what we learn. Um, Jesus is doing miracles and ministry in that area, and in chapter 11, verse 1, here's how this story begins. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know this story. This is a very familiar story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, this is the first mention of Lazarus in the book of John. We do not know how Jesus knows John. We do not know how he uh, formed a relationship with him or Mary or Martha. Uh, my guess would be that on the travels back and forth to Jerusalem that Jesus had, uh, he would have met them somewhere along the way. They would have just organically had a friendship. Uh, but that's conjecture. We honestly, the scriptures do not tell us how they met. But we do know that Lazarus is one that Jesus loves. So off the record, somehow uh, through Jesus's lifetime, there has been this friendship that is formed. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, these are people who love Jesus and are loved by Jesus. These are the people that Jesus would call on a Friday night to hang out with. These are people Jesus would want to get in his missional community group and live life together, do life together with. These are people he loved. And so the two sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, now listen to this, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son, Jesus, may be glorified through it. This sickness will not end in death. Jesus makes a promise. Hey, I know he's sick. I know he's on his deathbed. I know this thing looks bad, but it's not going to end in death. Jesus makes a promise. In fact, through this, you're going to see the glory of God revealed. Word gets back to Mary and Martha. And then we get this interesting line that has perplexed many people. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He stayed where he was two more days. I, I don't know what Jesus was doing. I don't know why Jesus stayed. I don't think he was just hanging out. I think he was continuing to do uh, and fulfill the ministry obligations he had in that area. 
Maybe he was packing up camp. Uh, Maybe he knew there were people out looking to harm him. Um, Maybe there was some kind of natural issue where he couldn't pass a certain area or something. I don't know. But two days, Jesus waits. Two days. Now, we live in an immediate gratification culture. We think Amazon Prime is too slow, right? Let's just be honest. How many of you think any shipping that takes over two days is outrageous? Yeah, I need, I need that back massager and I need it Tuesday. I need it. I have to have it now. In fact, many of us get frustrated when we have to wait two days. COVID-19 is holding this thing up. What about one day delivery? That's a Jeff Bezos guarantee. I need it. I want the Amazon employee to put it in the truck in Columbia, drive it to my house, knock on my front door, put the key code in and hand it to me without having to leave the couch. That's service. Jesus waits two days. Here's my question. How long? How long do you think Mary and Martha sat looking out the window? Messengers get back to town. It's only two miles. You can do that in 30 minutes at a slow pace. Two miles. How long do you think they sat? Because the messengers got back and they're waiting. Yeah, Jesus said this won't end in death. Well, they're checking their watch. All right, it's almost lunchtime. He'll be here any minute now. Late afternoon, they're looking out the window. Any minute, he's going to show up. He's going to fix this thing. Everything's going to be all right. That promise he made is going to be fulfilled any Minute, don't get discouraged. He's coming. He loves Lazarus. He made a promise. The sun starts to set. All right, maybe maybe he got caught up. Maybe tomorrow morning he'll be here. They wake up the next day, immediately run to the window. Where is he? Lunchtime, the second day comes. Where is he? How long before we start asking questions? How long until we start getting discouraged? How long does it take? Is it one month? Is it two weeks of quarantine? Is it six months? Is it a year? How long do we start asking God very difficult, pointed questions like Job did? Like David did? Like we'll see Mary and Martha even do? Where are you? Because, Jesus, I'm trying to hang on to your promises, but nothing this year seems to be going well. I'm trying to stay calm. I'm trying to keep the faith. But my kids' anxiety and depression is off the charts because they haven't seen another kid their age in six months. They're spiraling into deep, dark places. And I haven't had a paycheck in months. I haven't seen my family since Christmas last year. How long Until you start getting frustrated with God. How long until you start believing maybe. Maybe he's not going to show up. Maybe he was wrong about his promise. Because what we're going to find out according to Mary and Martha. It looks like it did end in death. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. That was a big jump. So verse 17. On his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. So the two days of waiting plus travel time, um, four days. 
Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard when Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Uh, Now, listen, we know from Scripture that Martha is feisty. Can we say that? Martha's feisty. All right, so later when Mary pours the perfume on Jesus' feet, sits at his feet, and listens to his teaching, Martha then issues a complaint. She's not doing anything, Jesus. And we know that she's feisty because Jesus has to say her name twice to calm her down later. Martha, Martha. And I've just kind of learned in life there's certain people with certain names that you don't mess with. Martha's one of them. Carrie's another one. That's my wife's name. Um, And then people named Joy. I don't know. There's just something about people named Joy that scare me. That's for Joy Sturgis. Martha was feisty. And she comes out, and here's what she says. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, this is verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many times do you say in your mind, Jesus, if you'd have just shown up, this wouldn't have happened? I mean, let's be real. Let's be honest. How many times have we issued complaints against God? If you would have just, you could have done this. You could have made this easier. You could have solved this issue. This didn't have to happen this way. If you would have just done this, this wouldn't have happened. Martha was upset. She was struggling because she knew the promise that Jesus had issued. But in her reality, it didn't look like it was panning out that way. And I don't know about you. But I know the promises of God. And it just doesn't look like our reality is panning out that way right now. Romans 8:28. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How? How? She's upset, she's frustrated. And Jesus says this, "Your brother will rise again." And I'm going to skip to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, he's talking about Mary now. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we get the shortest verse in English in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Why does Jesus weep? Jesus, at his birth, which we are celebrating in the month of December, he took on in what theologians call the hypostatic union. He took on human nature. So Jesus is one person, fully God and fully man. So here's the thing. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows that within 10, 15 minutes, Lazarus is going to be, I hope that's not a spoiler alert. The story's been out for about 2,000 years. You should know it by now. Um, He knows Lazarus is coming back. And yet Jesus weeps. Why? Why? Jesus enters so closely into the human condition and he sees the hurt and the pain that is around him. He sees the broken heartedness, the frustration, the anger, the sorrow of the people he loves and he weeps. First Presbyterian Church, people who are live streaming, people of God. Let me tell you this. Jesus is not sitting apathetically by 
in the economy of God, there is no tear that falls from your cheek that is wasted and that is not seen by the Lord. Jesus weeps with those who weep. The book of Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who has suffered through it all. He knows what it's like. Are you hurting right now? He knows what it's like. Are you frustrated right now? Jesus knows what it's like. Are you confused right now? Jesus knows what it's like. Are you angry right now? Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to have a loved one pass away. Most people, most scholars think that Joseph, his, his father, passed away at an early age. That's why we don't see many stories about Joseph um, in the Gospels. We know that his best friend Lazarus passed away. We know that he had friends betray him. We know that he was constantly bullied and mocked and people were out to get him. We know that he was homeless and he suffered. He was marginalized. He was oppressed. He was mocked and ridiculed. Everything that he said was taken and spun and twisted against him to try and trap him. Jesus knows what it's like. And he sees your pain and he sees your suffering and he sees your frustration and he weeps with you. He knows. You're not alone. He knows this. And Jesus weeps. He knows the outcome. He knows that he is working things for his glory and your good. And yet he still weeps. Christian Jesus weeps with you. On those sleepless nights, he stays awake with you. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? There's always two responses to Jesus. There's always the um, look how great he is and look how much he didn't do. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Now, here's what Jesus says. He issues a command here, and this is where we're really going to dig deep. Take away the stone. All right, Jesus comes to the tomb. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He comes to the tomb. Uh, People have gathered to weep, uh, to mourn, to come to the funeral service. Mary and Martha are there, and he says, take away the stone. Now listen to this. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for it has been four days. Just, (laughs) can you put yourself in Jesus' shoes right now? All right, take away the stone. I'm going to bring him back from the dead. Ooh, it's going to smell. I I don't think y'all are getting it. Um, I'm about to raise him from the dead. And your issue is the smell. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure it did smell. It wasn't pleasant. I'm sure that would have been caustic to the nose. But I'm about to raise this man back from the dead. And your word, do you want your brother back or not? Because I'm about to do something amazing. I'm about to do something miraculous. I'm about to fulfill a promise that was made and you're making an excuse that it's going to smell bad. That sounds silly. 
Chris Voss in his book, Never Split the Difference. It's about hostage negotiation, useful skill when you're a pastor. Um, he says, don't be so caught up on what you want that you miss something even better. And I think we are a people who are very comfortable and we like not being pressed. We like not getting out of our comfort zone. And Jesus says, hey, if you want to get the miracle, it's going to smell a little bit. If you want the miracle, you might have to go through something that's a little uncomfortable. If you want to see God do something big, you might have to take a step that's going to put you outside of your comfort zone. If you want to transform the heart of this city, you might have to do something that's going to make you a little nervous. If you want to see the power of God unleashed, you might have to take a step or two. You might have to smell some smells. Jesus says, take away the stone. And here's my question. What excuses are you making? And they might be legitimate. Yes, it was going to smell. What excuses are holding you back from the pursuit of Christ? What excuses are keeping the stone in your life in the in its place? Oh, I just I want to follow Christ. But, uh, you know, that missional community meets on Tuesday and Tuesday is just a busy night. That's hard to get to. Or or oh, counseling, marriage counseling, that's going to be expensive. Or what will people think? What will people think if me and my wife go to marriage counseling? I had a couple say that to me one time. And my response was, well, what do they say when you get divorced? What will people think? What will people think if they know my kid is seeing a counselor or is meeting with the pastor for help or that they're struggling with this sin? What do they think? It's uncomfortable. Sometimes we make excuses that hold us back from the vitality and depth and life that Jesus is ushering us into. Now, there's something very nuanced that goes on right here, and I want you to watch. Jesus tells Martha, take the stone away. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you will believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus tells Martha, take away the stone. Who takes away the stone? I know you guys know it. Don't be shy. They, they take away the stone. He tells Martha, do this. Who does it? They. First Pres, the greatest lie the Western church has ever bought into is that it's just you and Jesus. That your relationship is just you and Jesus and uh, me and him are going to do it. My faith is private and it's just me and him. Ah, that's, I'm sorry. That is not a tenable position in Scripture. In fact, St. Augustine said, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother. Because Martha was issued a decree, a command, and they moved the stone. There are things in your life, there are situations in your circumstances, there are habits you have, there are sin addictions that you have that you can't handle yourself. You know how you can tell? Because you've been trying to handle it yourself for 10 years. You've been trying to handle it yourself for 20 years, but you think that just this time is going to take care of it. You've been trying to handle it for 30 years. You know what? If you could have moved the stone, you would have moved it by now. You need a they. 
You need to surround yourself. In fact, Christ is calling you deeper into discipleship by surrounding yourself with people who when there is a stone in your life, they will put their hands on that stone and help you roll it away. Jesus is going to do a miracle and he tells them to move the stone. Jesus is inviting you into the miracle working of the kingdom of God, and it involves a they. Do you have people around you that are helping you move the stone? Do you have people around you who are willing to cry with you, who are willing to come pick you up at midnight, who are willing to talk on the phone, who are willing to hold you accountable, who are willing to ask you the difficult questions because they know the type of person that you want to be and they know the decisions you are making are not leading to that. And they love you enough. They care about you enough. God calls us into community. Community is obedience and it is worship. It is not just you and Jesus. And so they move the stone. We have to hurry on up here. Jesus prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. That they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Matthew Henry, uh, in his commentary, makes a, a kind of a funny joke. He says, it's good that Jesus said Lazarus specifically, because if not, all the dead would rise. That's how powerful Jesus is. Lazarus, come out. Watch this. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. You notice how the smell doesn't come up? You notice how Jesus wasn't like, Martha, you are right. Grab the Febreze. That is rough. Smells like the swamp rabbit trail. No, that doesn't come up. It's funny how when we pursue Christ, it seems that we realize after obedience that the excuses were just that. It's funny how when we take those steps of obedience, at least in my own life and maybe in yours, it seems that the excuses fade away because the gift, the blessing, the pursuit of Christ is better. It's not easy, but it's worth more. It's more valuable. It's worth it. Martha doesn't say, oh, ah, I've got to clean this up. This is going to smell for days. She says, my brother's back. Raised him from the dead. Lazarus comes out. And he comes out, not running, not sprinting, but he comes out shuffling. If you're familiar with um, burial traditions of the ancient Near East, I know that's something most of you study as a hobby just for fun on the side. Um, but what they would do is they would wrap them, think kind of a mummy, um, not, not so much to that degree, but similar. There were grave clothes. And then the final verse we'll look at. Jesus said to Lazarus, take off the grave clothes and go. Is that what that says? No. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus didn't say to Lazarus, all right, you have life, now fix yourself. All right, now you have life. Here's the three steps you need to get out of grave clothes. Here's the seven steps to successful living your second life now that you're back. He didn't say that. Jesus said to them, take off 
his grave clothes and let him go. You see, what's interesting is Lazarus had life, but he didn't have freedom. He had life given back to him, but he was not freed from the clothes of the grave. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. Who will free me from this body of death? And Lazarus is literally experiencing the body of death. And here's the thing, Christians. It takes them to help you walk in the freedom and fullness of life that Jesus is calling you to. You have to have a them. In fact, Jesus often uses them to complete the work that he has started. Jesus is doing the miracle. Jesus is enabling them to do the miracle. He's doing it. And he says, I've done the, I brought him back from the dead. At least you can take his grave clothes off. What, what boulder is in your way? What rock needs to be moved? What grave clothes are holding on to you? Do you have an anger issue? Are you drowning in debt right now? Is your marriage falling apart? Are you subtly abusive to your spouse so much so that you don't even know it? Are your kids running away from you because there's just always fighting and you don't seek to understand them? You don't seek to validate their point of view and and listen to them as actual human beings? You need a them to help you. You need a them. Is your mental health out of control? Are you depressed? You need to see a physician and a them. This is not just you and Jesus. In fact, oftentimes Jesus works out his miracles and shows off his glory in groups of people. It's very rare that Jesus does solo miracles. So here's the thing. Um, I have to wrap this up. I've been a Christian for 19 years now. Um, And and a lot of us, I feel like, have been walking with Jesus and and we look at our Christian lives and we see no real growth, no um, real movement. I remember one time when I was younger and my nephew was a little kid. He was very young. We were at Hilton Head Beach. And I'm not sure if I've told the story to you all before, but we were at Hilton Head Beach and uh, he and I were in the kiddie pool. And if you know anything about the kiddie pool, you know that water is just warmer. It feels good. There's something about it that you sit in it and it's just warmer than the pool. Um, and that was a joke. And <laughs> no one got that. Okay. Uh, so the sun was beating down on me. I was sitting in the pool and I was kind of leaned back on the, the brick around it. And he was playing. He had his little boats and ducks and things like that. And I don't know what it was. I just fell asleep. I dozed off. It was just a perfect day. And you know that good sleep where people try and talk to you and you're just like, ah. It was a good sleep. I woke up a little while later and apparently in the meantime, my parents had gotten my nephew and just left me there. And so I'm in the pool by myself. But I wasn't actually by myself. There was a little girl now in the pool and a mom who was just kind of staring at me. And so here's the thing. It's okay for a kid to be in the kiddie pool. Right. It's weird for a grown man to be in the kiddie pool alone. I mean, that's not normal. It's weird. I would argue that um, most United States Christians are in the kiddie pool. And that we've been walking with Jesus for some amount of time. um, But because we have refused to take certain steps of obedience 
because we do not believe that he's going to heal. We do not believe that he's going to show up. We do not actually think because we logic ourselves out of the power of God. We reason ourselves out of the power of God. We excuse ourselves out of the power of God that here I am 19 years into this walk with faith and I'm still in the kiddie pool in many ways. And so here's my challenge. If you want to see Greenville transformed, if we're serious about transforming the heart of this city, what excuses do you have to rid yourself of? Because they're not good. They might be legitimate and they might be perfectly logical, but they're not good. They're not good enough to trump what God has to say. What excuses are in your way? And what them, I don't think that's proper English, but what them are you going to find to help you move the stones in your life? What them are you going to surround yourself with? Because if you want to see the power of God unleashed in your life, if you want to see things that you didn't think God was going to be able to do, you got to have a them. you got to have community. It is the God-ordained way. First Presbyterian people of God, there is power. Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do. It might not look like our timeline, but he's going to do it. I would encourage you, take some time today to think about these things. Take some time today to pray, to seek his face and say, where have I made excuses? Where have I jumped ship too early when it comes to community and obedience? Let's pray. Father, today we know, we know, Lord, that we are um, frustrated in many ways. Father, that as we look around, 2020 has not played out like any of us thought it would. And Father, like Martha, we levy accusations that might be accurate. If, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And we don't take you at your word when you said this will not end in death. And so, Father, I pray today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move us, that you would call us to investigate and examine our own hearts, our own lives, and say, what excuses are we making? Where are we scared? Where do we want to keep that um, everything's okay in our life facade intact? Lord, the biggest hurdle to discipleship is that first step. And so, Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would empower us to take that step. Give us insight, Lord. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.